This episode of Paper Team is brought to you by Tracking Board's Launchpad Writing Competitions. In just four years, the Launchpad has helped 216 writers get signed, 68 projects set up, and 35 writers stuffed, and also led to four bidding wars. To check out their current and upcoming competitions, visit tblaunchpad.com and see how the Launchpad can jumpstart your professional writing career. Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're going to be talking about writing for children's animation with a special guest, Stephen Darren Set, who has written on shows like Bob the Builder, the Emmy winning series Tumbleleaf for Amazon Studios, La La Loopsy for Nick Jr., and various other shows for Warner Brothers Animation and Cartoon Network. Hello, everybody. Great to be here. Thank you very much for having me. How did you get your start in the industry and then transition that into being a writer? It's a long, boring story. I won't tell all of it here. But, um, well, I guess just to, just to focus on the whole writing thing, I, it started because I, I started as an office temp at Warner Brothers Animation a long time ago. Uh, this is like, they would say, just pretty much at the end of the golden era of the Warner Brothers Animation, if you're familiar with like the Batman series and those shows coming out in the 90s that were just like amazing shows, as well as like Animaniacs was big and Pinky the Brain was... At this point, sort of waning, they they sort of just when they started to shoehorn El- Elmira into it, it's sort of when I was there, and it was a long term temp assignment where I was a kind of like a script corner slash assistant for the producer, one of the big producers named Alan Burnett, who's uh, produced a billion things for Warner Bros. Animation, multi Emmy winning, a lot of good stuff he he wrote on and he produced, as well as a few other writers and stuff in this like pit there. And as these scripts came across my desk, I was kind of interested in seeing, like, well, I wonder if I can do this myself. I mean, because I, I was getting exposed to so many of them, and I was actually physically editing the notes that he would give me and actually put them into the scripts. And at one point, I had an idea for one of the shows. The show uh, at the time was uh, Ozzy and Drix, was, was a the television spinoff version of the movie Osmosis Jones. It's great. Instead of having uh, Bill Murray Frank, they had this uh, kid named Hector, and so they aged it down with this kid being the kid that has, <laughs> mm-hmm. I guess the story is somehow the pill and Ozzy shoot out, and then somehow ends up in Hector's food and he eats it, and then, then, then they're inside his body now. That's what I remember. And I had an idea, and I pitched it to him, and uh, I thought he wouldn't be receptive to it, and he thought, that's a pretty good idea. Let me think about it. And like days went by and he came back to me and he sort of hung over my cubicle. It's like, I'm still thinking about that idea you gave me. I'll, I'll tell you about it. I'm like, oh, okay. Like, it's, nothing's ever going to happen to us. Like, he's either going to get A, fired, or he's going to forget about it. And then he came back a few days later. Like, yeah, okay, I'm going to pitch this. But it's kind of similar to another writer's idea. But I don't know what to do about it. But I'm going to go see if they'll let me do it for you because you're new and you know, you know I, I understand. I totally understand. And he comes back to me at the end of the day, like, I think like, almost 6.30 or something. It's like he's walking his door. And um, yeah, so I guess, you know, guess we'll go ahead and start that uh, that episode. I'm like, oh, okay. And I literally had to shot down the hall and say, wait a second, I'm sorry, did I get the job? <laughs> it's like, yeah, you got it. It's like, that was like um, 2003 or something, I think. And that was my first professional writing assignment for any kind of a scripted animation stuff that started from there. And I guess it's a good example of being sort of in the right place at the right time kind of thing and then taking advantage of it without being too full on because I was there a long time before I thought about branching out beyond this answering the phones and making copies of storyboards and scripts and and things like that. So it shows the value of also putting yourself out there and being willing to take risks and find those opportunities. Yeah, totally. What, What kind of drew you to writing kids animation? What were some of the shows that inspire you in the past? 
prior to that, nothing really. I didn't have a desire to write on animation at all. I mean, I sort of, um, but I did watch it. And I always kind of watch it with a bit of disdain and watch these Scooby-Doo episodes like, oh my God, this is so easy. There's mysteries. <laughs> Going like, I guess I guess missed the point as a kid. Like, uh, it was supposed to be difficult. I thought, I wish, it was, they, I wish for once the ghost was real kind of thing. Like, just for once, make it a real ghost. Just, just, just tread the realm of supernatural just once. It's okay. It doesn't have to be like a farmer with this mask, this amazing mask that he got somehow. That's perfect. <laughs> Yet he lives on a farm, so don't worry. Um, so, but beyond, but once I was exposed to what these guys are doing back then, because I took, I came from, I came from background. I wanted to be an independent producer. When I got that that temp gig, I produced like a very low end independent film called Bleak Future. You can probably look it up, and I got some awards and stuff. And uh, me and a bunch of my friends, a producer uh, and writer Brian O'Malley and myself, we worked on it. A bunch of people put it together. Spent like no money, but a lot of time on it. We shot a movie in Super Eight. Feature length, like so a feature length, feature Super eight movie, movie, Super Eight film, Super wow. Eight film, Super Eight sound film. So wow. I don't recommend it back in the late nineties, and I don't recommend it today, especially when <laughs> most of the equipment is dried up. Most of the equipment is dried up then, so it gives you an idea how difficult. It was. I think actually, like Kodak just resurrected did, uh, yeah. a bunch of Super Eight tape, which is mm-hmm. kind of interesting. So that was like you know, it didn't make us rich and famous, didn't make us next Robert Rodriguez's or uh, Kevin Smith, but you know kind of exposed to me what kind what I can do, cannot do. I then I produced another independent film after that. It did not work well at all. I said, okay, well, maybe this is not where I want to be. And then I did think about TV writing and I did write a I did I wrote a spec of the tick. Just oh, I don't know why. The, uh, the live action tick. The live action but the original tick. live action tick back in two thousand one it was. And that was my sample. That was a sample that allowed me to hand it to Alan to say Here's my sample, and you liked it. That was okay. That's why I was allowed to pitch an idea because I actually had it. So mm-hmm. I don't think anyone specced the tick then. The series lasted I, maybe two seasons at yeah, the, the most. The, the Patrick Warburton. One, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Which is now I think a lot of attention is going to that because it's a really good show, and Amazon rebooted the tick. And mm-hmm. that was it. I mean, that show was pretty close to cartoon. So mm-hmm. I thought maybe, well, this is a superhero show. It kind of has a genre. It's very cartoony in many ways. This will be my sample. And plus, that was my only other TV sample. And I know I did write something else. I did write another spec because I was actually spending some time with Sony Animation as well as, as, as a temp again. And I wrote a... So my first actual animation script I ever wrote was a Jackie Chan Adventures. I misunderstood. Like, I could write a script and then they'll buy the episode. Not, that's not quite how it works, but that's mm-hmm. what I thought then. And it was too long. It was like too many pages and things are kind of stilted. But I looked back and not too long ago. I was like, oh, it was close. It was pretty good for a first time. But that and the tick and I sent it over and, and that was sort of... I guess they thought, look, okay, well, this guy has maybe the chops for animation writing. You kind of fell into this world of kids' animation. Tell us a little bit about that landscape. Like, what are the kind of demographics in kids' writing? I've heard about, like, preschool, like, 6 to 11. What Mm -hmm. do they all mean? You know, what are they? I'll try to be as accurate as possible, because it seems like it seems to be shifting all the time. Like, they're they're shoehorning new age brackets or something, like a a preteen and a pre-preteen or something. But I guess I guess preschool, I guess nowadays, you can say is four to six or something. I know I'm, this sounds strange because I, I think they're starting kids younger in yeah. terms of the kind of programming, especially like Tumble Leaf where it was a show that's very young, but it's not as young as, say, as like watching the Teletubbies, which is just, that's embryonic. I don't know. Like <laughs> toddlers or something. Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. it's basically toddlers or something newborns because <laughs> 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 I don't know who else can watch that. And so then there, there's that category and there's like a, a younger it's like an older preschool and then there's preteens and there's teen and the age range is I, I have a hard time pinning down at the time. I would say, I'd say six to eight is probably what 
older preschool is, but I think Tumbleleaf was like probably four to six or something. You know, I've seen kids respond to it that I know are just like three years old, and they're like, oh, their eyes light up, and and that's like that's like kind of like a low end sweet spot for. The- I'm curious, is this a mandate on the network side or mm. the production side, or is it kind of the the industry itself that has this breakdown? It would always seem like it came down from the industry and broadcasters in particular, where they start. Because I think a lot of things, especially everything in life, but especially animation, it's very marketing oriented. So they start finding sweet spots like we need something here. And we need to find sort of like this kind of demographic that we haven't been hitting before. Can we somehow make this demographic happen? So it's sort of like, yeah, we need shows for this age range. What do you feel are the big distinctions between the, the age range in terms of content? I would say, first of all, is this a lot of the dialogue? I've always been like a, a person who liked to write dialogue and have them talk a lot and be clever and very adult skewing. And the preschool, as you can imagine, you know, not a lot of dialogue that's super clever. You'll get a lot of that. And sometimes as writers, we can feel like we can be a little more clever. It's because we always try to give something for the adults in the room, like throw them a curveball that they pick up, that kids will go over their head kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they don't even allow that. Like, we don't even want that at all. We just really want straightforward, younger kind of writing. And uh, you do see that for preschool, it would be that kind of thing where, you know, there's, there, there's, no, there's no sarcasm. There's no real good conflict between the characters. Which, you know, there's a couple of shows I worked on where it had no conflict at all was, was sort of like the mandates. Like, there's no conflict. And then I would talk to Stray, like, how do we have... Because we know as writers, like, well, I'm sorry, how do we write stories with no right, conflict yeah, between exactly. characters? Then there's no story. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we cheat it and make it happen. And it's like, that's, that's, we made it work. Do you have a preference of a particular age range? Do you like to write older or younger? Or, you know, what do you enjoy? Well, I write a whole lot of things. I would say like, I prefer uh, for writing for adults because I, I do some like the more older adult kind of animation as well. But um, I would say the last few years, I just I really found a niche for myself in preschool. So I'm comfortable with it. I would definitely don't want to be pigeonholed in that forever because once you do, you know, you, when you get one preschool show, you get another, you get another. Not to say I don't want those jobs. People listen, oh, Steve's not <laughs> interested in preschool anymore. Let's, let's give the script to someone else. No, it's, it's never like that. But um I feel comfortable in the preschool realm, but I, I would I would like to expand and do more, I would like to do more boys, um, particularly boys action in the realms like um, some of the like the DC stuff again or the Marvel mm-hmm. universe. I've I've always been very keen on that kind of thing, and I haven't had an opportunity to really work on that. Yeah, I did Crypto the Super Dog was the only superhero one, and, I, and Ozzy and Drix was sort of in the DC universe vaguely because it was a Warner Brothers show, but I never got to do any of those kind of uh, series where Guardians of the Galaxy or something right. like really great hot kids action shows. Right now, I did do a, a Ben Ten a while back, and that was it. So tell us a little bit about that pigeonholing. If you have a lot of say preschool on your mm-hmm. resume, they might not consider you for older range brackets, or if you write for a lot of say like girl focused shows mm-hmm. they won't put you on boys stuff or like how does that really work that can happen that is totally true it's been it hasn't been entirely my experience but i know that once well this person is a preschool writer and whether or not like it or not my agent or manager might pitch me as that because mm-hmm. they obviously want to get me latched on to something first so they're not going to like steve's great a lot of things but we need a preschool writer but steve's a great writer for this dark humor adult navel gazing writing but we need that preschool he's always just great at preschool he's awesome <laughs> yeah. specialist only of that so if you're kind of concerned about not being pigeonholed in that, it's hard to avoid it. I mean, you know, we want to take the work that comes. You're not going to want to cut yourself off. I, I think with animation writing, you kind of come with the jobs, take them, get them while you can, but maybe branch out on your own stuff, write, like I've done it before, write some specs, write some samples that are not in your wheelhouse. So you've, you've already proved yourself as a preschool writer. Obviously, there's, it's on TV. Someone can download it. But you want to write your BoJack Horseman, do that on your own time. Or um, like they said a long time ago, the, a tick spec, something out of left field, you'll have that. So it's like 
you could say, Steve Darren has done these X and X shows. But he wants to write on this show, too, and here's evidence that he can probably do that as well. Are a spec of existing shows still as popular in the animation realm? Especially, let's say you want to get out of that mm-hmm. uh, pigeonhole. So you're going to be specking, like, let's say, Bojack Horseman mm-hmm. versus maybe an original pilot that's akin to Bojack. Would that work? I think that could work. I mean, I, th- I think we all know the trend is nowadays just is people still want to have original pilots. But of course, we know when you want to go to those fellowship- fellowships, that's another good way to kind of break out of a pigeonhole. Like, okay, I want to get into Disney fellowship for... Disney live action tween comedies. So then you want to spec something. But at least from my personal experience, I don't like to spec a lot of things. I haven't spec anything in a long time. It's like my own, my own stuff. So that's why I haven't, inter- haven't entered a fellowship or something in a long time because I don't have a spec. Like, right, you have to write a spec of one of the shows. Like, how strict is the, the standards and practices and censorship and regulation of that children's content when you're putting your scripts in and the network's coming back and saying, you can't do this, you can't do that? Pretty effing strict. <laughs> <laughs> that's why my language is cleaned up. Um, you know, I don't. I didn't ever saw a lot of notes from networks, usually because I've never been. I haven't had the uh, story editor position yet, so I've never saw them. wasn't exposed to me. It was filtered down to me at this point. But yeah, you know, especially broadcast. Of course, they're going to look for the content. I, mean, I have some stories where, as writers, we try to slip some stuff by the censors. I'm not going to specify some couple of shows, but even some stuff I've written on where some jokes got by them. And we were kind of proud about it. But, you know, at the same time, I kind of feel, especially in writing the stuff for uh, younger people, I don't want to be so subversive. I don't want to be like, yeah, we're always trying to put, like, dirty jokes or something. Because that's what they think of writers in L.A. and Hollywood. Like, oh, they're always (laughs) trying to corrupt America or something. And there's evidence of it. It's like, no, they keep it straightforward. But, you know, when you get bored, you want to have a character be a little more sharp or something. We try to be try to be a little more sarcastic or try to have some jokes that might allude to a film or something that adults might know and more often not that's okay censors let that by but the dirty language of course and the stuff that can be like innuendo that's that's they're gonna find that kick that out are you saying that if i watch any of your episodes backwards i won't get a satanic <laughs> message uh, there's no promise of that um <laughs> you'll just get a message at uh, visit my website <laughs> What do you feel are some of the kind of unique challenges in writing for young kids versus adults? Be it, you know, the humor, the references, even the narrative structure, or this idea that you have to repeat things three times for kids to get it, all those different issues. Well, I guess a good example, I, I could probably just talk about Tumble Leaf, which is um, a show that was interesting to me because it's a great show. And as you know, it's recently won Annie for the best preschool show of its... Um, age range for animation as well as story and things like that and it's a show where there was a very specific cadence and it was something i haven't encountered before where uh we always had like every show had a certain kind of structure to it and you had to follow it but this show on the page has a certain kind of cadence to it and there was a certain beat and there was like you said yes a repetitiveness to it but the repetitiveness had had to be just just right it was like not too hot not too cold the repetitiveness had to like first address an issue like the character would find in one of my episodes, he was looking for a, um, an, a Christmas ornament that was lost in the snow. And so he had snowshoes, and he kept kind of walking, and he started to notice the snowshoes would kick it up snow. And he, there's the element like, oh, look at this kicking up the snow. And he talks about it, and kicks us. And then the beat is it kicks the snow a couple of times. Like, Ch-ch-ch-ch-ch-ch. It just goes on. You would think on other TV, like, okay, we get the idea. It's kicking snow. You can do that in one action block. You don't have to describe every little step. Not for this show, because then there's a pattern to it. Then he realizes that kicking snow does something else, and that something else leads to an idea, and he starts playing with that idea, and that idea leads to an actual thought where he helps solve his problem. And that's a, that's a perfect example of a, of a of a series that had a certain kind of structure to it. 
it was unusual because all the other animated series of writing didn't quite have that structure to it. But that one had a cadence that was, it was tough. And it was really tough to get it right the first time, the second time, the third time. And once you get it right, you kind of, it's like alchemy because you didn't quite know how it happened. It was like the notes came back perfect. And you look in the page like, okay. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Because you see like, okay, it was like since we're invisible act breaks that you're there. How do you guys figure out that perfect amount? Is it the feedback from the network? Is it you guys putting yourself in the mind of a young child? You have like a educational consultants and stuff, right? Who weigh well, in. yeah, there was there is a, a educational consultant, and she does weigh in as well as an Amazon. Their notes weren't really full on, at least the ones I didn't see. But you know, again, they get they get filtered down by the story editor. So I was working directly with the story editor, Karen Greenberg, who's fantastic, and she's still on Tumble Leaf and is starting some other stuff, uh, I think, pretty soon. And we just basically would go back and forth about the notes. And the notes were, sometimes the notes are pretty easy. Like, I would hit it the, uh, the ballpark the first time. Sometimes, like, look, they need this beat, and it's hard to place where this beat. And we sort of go back and hash it out. Like, maybe he does this, or maybe he says this word, or maybe he kicks the snow this way, and the snow hits his face, and he wipes it off, and he sees something. And because we're all trying to serve all these different kinds of masters, but they eventually, these notes all have to agree, like, eventually, that, yes, we're ready to move forward. So it was tough. But, you know, we, we did get it. It was just a lot of just a lot of trial and error. So you mentioned the story editor. Can you tell us a little bit about the system of how being an animation writer works compared to a traditional sort of writer's room for live action shows or for primetime animation? A lot of it's freelance, right? Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll start a bit about the, the writing process. It's almost akin to, like, just writing features because you're so much, you're by yourself a lot. And I've been, I've been, I've written some animated series where we had a tiny bit of a writer's room. We had like some writing summits for Bob the Builder where me and a bunch of other writers went down to Mattel and were there for like a week and there's sandwiches and camaraderie and we did a whiteboard thing and I broke down my story on the whiteboard. They, they commented stuff and then they broke their story on the whiteboard and then we made notes. And for the most part though, you don't get that kind of experience. And we had that kind of like tumble leaf. We had like a story summit too where you pitch ideas and they kind of go back and then we're on. Then you're on your own. You write from the notes. My story editor at that show, she's not even in L.A. She's in New York. 90% of the time she was working in New York City. So everything was done by Skype or email and sometimes phone calls. So what does a story editor do and who do they work for? She worked directly for the studio. And uh, she was working for BixPix Animation at the time as well for Amazon. BixPix was the studio, is the studio for Tumblr that actually physically makes the show. And they're the ones that shoot it over in Sun Valley. And, you know, she'd basically be my direct boss because I really didn't have to go beyond her. She would have the notes. We would discuss the story ideas. She would, she would eventually, I would actually send pitches. So in our situation was sort of like a, a, like a permalance thing, like freelance, but there's like maybe five or six writers that were pitching on ideas. A pitcher an idea, a couple sentences that come back, like not this one, not this one, maybe this one, here's a grain of an idea, a germ of an idea, flesh that out some more, come back, okay, do a beat sheet, come back, and sometimes beat sheet would be rejected. Okay, sorry, you gotta just do another pitch, they're not, they're not gonna, this is not gonna work. Or then beyond that, beat sheet, go to an outline, and go to script. Once we got the beat sheet down, I know from that point on, we're, this is going to be an episode. So it's kind of the old school, almost law and order, the qual procedural model of mm. having separate writers for specific episodes. Yeah. And there's no real writer's room except for that initial pitch fest almost, right? Right. Yeah. And then a lot other animated series I've worked on didn't even have that, the, the pitch fest, as you said, like the whole writer's summit. I would just, it's a couple of shows where I just pitched an idea to the story editor via email again. This one guy I never even met in person ever on some shows I did a long time ago. And it was, I just pitched a bunch of ideas, emailed him like two pages, like three sentences. He either responded to them or didn't. 
the ones who responded like, okay, go to like a, a beachy and then from the beachy he would just green light it. And but the most part I'm just at home, just maybe doing my day, walking around, cleaning the bathroom, doing whatever, thinking of stuff and just kinda imagining this cartoon and hopefully coming up with something you know it's tough i mean i would love to work on a, a show of a writer's room again and i liked it especially stuff we did with animation and so that's why i kind of compare to the feature writer who is holed up or the novelist doing the great american novel on a lake somewhere in vermont just because you're, you're in your own little space and when you're thinking about cartoon characters in your own little space in your apartment for hours <laughs> on end the wife starts worrying about you like mm, all right i'm fine have you ever written for a storyboard-driven show as opposed to a script-driven one? And if so, how is that process different? Um, I have not, mainly because they're storyboarded. I guess we understand what the process is, but I can kind of, I can kind of touch on it. So back on Tumbleweave, amazingly, a lot of people would come to me and say, that's a storyboarded show, right? It's storyboarded, because look at it. It's like, why would there be a script? What's amazing about the show, there is a script for that show. It was a very precise, plotted-out script for that series. And then it goes to storyboarded, and then that storyboarded storyboards go into stop motion animation. Can you explain to people who don't know how a storyboard driven show oh, right, works right. as so, opposed to a script driven one? So, like a, a perfect example is SpongeBob. So they don't have they don't have scripts. Mm-hmm. And in fact, a long time ago, not too long ago actually, about a year ago, I asked someone who actually worked as a writer, but he was more like a joke writer or something. And he kind of said, "Can I get a copy of a, a script of, of SpongeBob?" But it had to be like a conformed script of something that was already made. And it was like something was on an Excel spreadsheet or something. Because like, <laughs> there was no script. It was like a recording script. And the conformed script means, of course, it was already post-recorded from when they were doing the episode. And the writers I've met from these kind of storyboarded shows, whether it be like a Phineas and Ferb or SpongeBob, they were just they were just punch up stuff and they would be in the room when they're doing the storyboarders so you'd have the director and the writer from the episode and they would just write jokes stuff directly on the boards so if you go into like a show where there's a board driven show you're going to see boards everywhere and people writing in little stuff and they have writers like oh you could say put a fart here or something but be sarcastic <laughs> about it because we don't want to do fart jokes and yeah so write that here and then normally i'd fart right here and you write a little joke in there like oh, and then it's, it's like becomes like a spitballing session. But I never got to be on one of those kind of shows. So Do those writers generate the outlines for the story and break the story initially to give it to the storyboard artists in general? I, I, th- I, th- I think it does go to some point where they will have to create a, an outline just to make things more clear mm-hmm. once I guess they've gone through the whole process of kind of spitballing the jokes and trying to figure out. Because, you know, they have the artists kind of doing drawing the stuff as they go through it. It's almost the polar opposite of what <laughs> you're used to. That's yeah, crazy. it is. Yeah. And, you know, for a long time, it, it, everything was really storyboarded, storyboard driven. It was like a lot of writers were like, oh, now we're not, no one's going to want writers again. But like shows, all this, I've seen a trend now coming back to a lot of writing again, like the good old fashioned DC Warner Brothers days to stuff we see on Netflix and Amazon, where there is a lot of script driven programming, as well as still some supported stuff's coming up there too. So going back to the content of your work, I'm curious, how do you generate ideas for children's animation? I have no idea. I, know, <laughs> I really don't know where it comes from. If I know a lot about a show, like if I was put up for a show, like, Steve, you're going to write on a show about fire trucks that shoot flames of the behinds. I'm like, okay, well, that sounds like a very compelling show. So <laughs> let me see what I can do for you guys. So... If I'm given materials, if it's a show that's already like a, a moving train where it's like a season two or three, that's going to be a lot helpful. If it's a new show, that might be a bit tougher because then we don't know what the characters are or things like that. But let's just say I'm on a show where I have all those materials. And based on 
I guess one of the things I do, I either try to watch the show, hopefully I'm familiar with the show already, so I've seen some episodes, and then try to get an idea of what's already been done, just to save me time. So I'm trying to avoid repeating things. Here's an idea, did it. Here's an idea, we did that one. So, okay, let's have a list of what your needs, wants, episode, dreams you might have, and what's been done. And then I just take it from there, and I start just kind of imagining the episodes. I start, I guess I have a pretty good imagination, just seeing these cartoons sort of unfold. I guess it happens either early in the morning or sometime around 5 p.m. I start getting into a groove. <laughs> I start kind of washing dishes, start thinking about like, I could see the episode and the characters are saying these lines to each other. Like, oh, it's pretty good. And I put on the whiteboard and like start breaking it down. There's some episodes where I just, I just had a funny title for something. Just mm-hmm. a weird title. And that's, that's all. <laughs> now let's try to find an episode around. And I know that sounds kind of intuitive. Like that's not good writing, but you have to kind of take the ideas where you come from. And sometimes that title is a germ of something that turns out amazing. There's been some great episodes based on just a funny title. So when you're working for like a toy company that's creating animated series around mm-hmm. those, those properties, do they ever come to you with a mandate like, we want to sell this new character's toy or we want to set it in this particular place and you have to kind of work around that? Yes. That's my answer. No, um, yeah, a perfect example was Lala Loopsy, which I worked, which was an MGA series. And, and if a lot of people haven't heard about it, even though it was a wildly popular toy, but a little more, it's sort of fallen off at this point. But it was a big toy about five to six years ago. So it was one of those toys every, every mom, mom, I need this, need this doll. And Lala Loopsy has this like, huge amount of different kind of doll characters. And they have different personalities. And there's like close to like maybe 50 of them. And it's been, it's been building at some point. And the episodes that I started to write was almost like creating kind of a canon for the, some characters. like Because I was getting some early... My story editor was also Karen Greenberg, also it would take me on later on to um, Tumbleleaf. She said, here's this, here's a new idea for this character, and it's a chalk outline doll. It's a, just a chalk outline of a doll. Here's a picture of it. Good luck. And I'm like, okay. And then we kind like of... The doll had been murdered in a crime scene? Like. <laughs> yes. It's a chalk outline on the street, and the, the, the character's trying to figure out how this happened. <laughs> right, that would have been great. God, it would... Chalk outline. Uh, that's a subversive film. Like, yeah. We were given some very new products, and we had to be very tight-lipped about it. You can't discuss everyone else because these dolls are still being made right now, and they're they're just being manufactured. They're gonna no one's gonna see them until like just prior before Christmas. So by the time the episode comes out, hopefully they'll dovetail, and they'll come around the same time, and they'll be on Christmas shelves, and you'll see on Nick- Nickelodeon. And but for the most part, you know, there was a then there was a mandate about how to do the show. This doll's going to have this kind of personality. and But sometimes they didn't have any idea what they wanted. And there was a couple of dolls where I would see them, like there was one doll from Polynesia, like a, kind of like a Hawaiian kind of thing. Like, oh, she's cool. She's cute. A, a Hulu skirt and stuff. And what do we know about her? So, well, that she might like coconuts. Okay, well, I'm going to make that like a personality <laughs> trait where she... This character had all kinds of... She was crazy for coconuts, and she had coconuts for everything, and she would pull co- coconuts out of thin air. Like, anyone needed something like, oh, oh, I wish we had some... Oh, here's a coconut. For, and the joke was like, where did you keep getting these coconuts? They would actually <laughs> ask her this, and like, some shrugs, and I was like, you know. But before that character had, like, zero personality other than description about her, what she looks like, and she might like a Hulu dancing, and that's it. Like, who, who usually, if you ask the boat to come up with those stories, is it, the, is it you guys, is it the marketing department that has those mandates initially? For that kind of pro- product, uh, the market department, for the most part, especially for the, the characters, the dolls have been around for a year or so, they already had it. So they would already have, like, this character, 
like you would have two characters seem like they both like parties. Like this doll liked parties a lot, and this doll liked these kind of parties. But they would specify, like, no, this doll likes more parties with bacon involved. This one likes more confetti and glitter kind of parties. Very specific about that, and you're not supposed to mix them up. It's already set in stone. It's on their boxes. Kids already buying these dolls, and parents of kids already knew the story, backstory of those characters. You couldn't change it that much. So, But when we had the opportunity for new dolls, where the mandate from marketing was limited because they didn't know either it was fun because it's like you knew that once you get that down and they agree to it well it's you know, i'm not using the word canon again like it's some sort of doctor who kind of thing but, <laughs> but it's like and that's it and it's fun to look back long later on reboots of the show like netflix i think rebooted this one law loopsy series i'm not on but you saw i saw some of the characters and they had some of those traits that came from prior season series that because you now established it from right. now and you're using it so that's kind of cool so is kids' content ever required or encouraged to have an educational component to it? And then how do you balance sort of the education with entertainment? Uh, it's toughy. Some shows I worked on didn't quite have that requirement. I think a lot of them kind of felt, I guess, illuminated education kind of thing with IE or some other EI. I forget there's like, a, anytime you turn on some American TV show, you'll see like a little letters on the screen, which is to alert you that this is vaguely, vaguely educational. Because I've seen the thing up here in some shows that are pretty dumb. Like there's nothing... <laughs> Noteworthy about this show, but you're telling me it's illuminating education, whatever mandate, or whatever makes you happy. So, I guess I could see Tumbleleaf again. There had a certain, did have an educational element, was about learning through playing. And since we had a psychologist involved and another team of education people, and just um, selling it to that way, obviously that was an educational show. And we definitely had that cadence, as I speak, into that sort of rhythm in the scripts to help them learn. And, but a show like La Loopsy, not so much. We didn't want to do something like that was crappy, but you know, when I, we but we try to try to tell stories that were as good as possible. But there wasn't an edu- education element other than coming away with is about teamwork and friendship. We, we think we all heard that kind of thing before, so that was basically all the kind of educational element for that. Bob the Builder, that was a series that definitely had educational in the sense that again teamwork and also a bit of um, how to build things. I mean, mm-hmm. Bob the Builder always had these things where. Very important montages where you see things put, being put together, and the kids, especially the boys' kids, responded to that elements of the sawing, the hammering. It was like, oh, this is ed- this is engineering. This is like the STEM kind of thing, you know, science, technology, engineering, math kind of stuff going on because they're building a shed again for the fiftieth time <laughs> for yeah. something. But yeah. so Bob the Builder, can he build it? Yes, he can. Oh, okay. <laughs> now we can close out the podcast. Thanks for listening. That's it. Good night. <laughs> How do you feel writing for children has changed over the years, especially now that we have phones and tablets and second screens mm-hmm. and maybe the attention span is not what it used to be? All these elements. How do you feel that has impacted uh, writing for children's animation? For me, for writing television animation, my experiences are I'm, I'm getting more and more kind of offers for gigs where it's almost short attention span theater kind of thing where it's like we we have a series but it's we want you to write five minutes of something because it's going to be on multi-screens so they like the whole tv everywhere kind of thing now it's like it's going to be we're going to show maybe a full episode where it's like 15 minutes long on tv and then we're going to have it broken down to five minutes and broken down to two minutes for a tablet and they're keeping that in mind the whole just like i said the whole output is very much motivating how the content is now you know i guess I'm not such an old timer. I feel like I remember the good old days where you had a 30 minute cartoon and you like it. And you're going to watch it. <laughs> like, you know. I understand things change. I understand you. Most, a lot of kids don't consume like, you know, like remember they don't, they, they might watch a show. They might be watching a 30 minute show, but they're only watching it for like maybe at the outset of like 
five minutes at a time or something. They might watch it before bed and they go to school and they might pick up that episode an hour later after dinner and then they go back before bath time and watch it again. And it's the same episode, but they're watching it all day. And they always keep it out of mind. And, and now, yeah, the trend is, is, is shorter, sweeter, quicker kind of thing, quickly consumable. It doesn't have to affect the content in kind of a in, in a kind of um, in a bad way. We have to expect that with the attention span is not necessarily shortened, but the people are just busier now in terms of their content options. Especially the kids, they can just kind of turn off and on, and we never have the ability. You know, I guess as kids in the '90s or '80s or whatever, we probably would have done that too if we had that ability to turn off a show and come back to it. Those thirty-ish minutes episodes are then broken down into five-minute pieces. Is that right? Yeah, if if that 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 if that's what they need. Yeah, is, so. Okay. Well, I'm just wondering. I've seen if, some stuff that I've done that's been like turned into like a webisode kind of thing, and it's always been broken down into the segments. To it's like okay, they're just using reusing content kind well, of thing. I'm just wondering if you how do you even take that into account? Like procedurally, do you have like ten act breaks basically, keeping in mind that it's going to be split into all these different weird parts? If it's something that's like it's going to be like 22 minute episode and stuff. I think maybe down the end of the line, I know it might end up on the web. They might be doing some sort of like uh, multi-screen kind of thing for it. But at that point, I'm not worrying about it. Unless someone specifically says like, this is going to be, because I have been hired for some stuff where it's been webisode stuff and specifically will just be like maybe one or two acts in something. And then it's very short and then might continue or just might be just one act. It's be like a character does something funny and the story is like, it's like a five page script and that's it. So moving back towards sort of the industry side of this, mm-hmm. most non-primetime animation writing is covered, it's not WGA, it's covered under a separate guild, the Animation Guild, mm-hmm. IATSE 839. Right. So what, what are your kind of thoughts on this? Positives and negatives? And do you think that maybe animation writers will ever get to become a part of the WGA? I, I don't know. I would, I off, I think about it a lot. I'm, I'm not even in that other guild. I'm in, I'm the WGA. Uh, in fact, we're not entirely 100% covered as, as animation writers. We're in like a subset. I'm, I'm in the part of the Animation Writers Caucus, mm-hmm. which is a good group in terms of, I guess, for us to kind of feel like we're in a full-on WGA and stuff. And they do help get us uh, foreign levies are owed to us and stuff. We have mm-hmm. a lot of, you know, caucus meetings and things like that in regards to it. But and then, but you know, I guess we all kind of feel like we all kind of feel like writing's writing, and especially. You, you rewrite a script that's a half hour long and just because it's a cartoon character it didn't mean it's like not real writing. I spe- spoke to a lot of writers who were once animation writing colleagues of mine who moved on to other stuff and, and they always felt slighted like, you know, people producers like, you know, oh, I'm sorry, you know, this isn't, I imagine like, like I have, I have like eight episodes of a half hour series and that most people who are working on a, uh, a live action show might not even have their first half hour writing credit and the big consider, like, well, that's he's a real writer, and he's covered by the WGA for that. And like, but I've written 12 hours of <laughs> produced yeah. television that yeah. was also written and had a director, had a professional voice actor. Some of those actors are SAG actors, and they did it. And saying so, mm, it's not the same thing. I think, I guess, now that we're possibly a looming strike, shadow is upon us all. I hope that's not going to happen. I don't think it is. But if it does, I, I don't know if it's going to clear up any of the issues. It wasn't cleared up in 2008, where we, you know, we had an animation writer who was our president. We thought, like, yeah, this is going to be it. We're going to get it. It didn't quite happen. It's, I kind of feel like it, it may not. I think the excuses for the, from the networks and producers' stuff is, like, it's that the budgets are too low. It's too scattered. It's too international. We can't keep track of all the episodes that animation writers are writing to pay you guys. And it's like, well... I think it's a lot of hooey. I mean, they do it internationally for levies. Why can't it be done here? But for the most part, I guess that's a long-winded answer of thinking like, 
I don't know. And I don't expect it's going to happen anytime soon for full coverage for animation writers. I just don't see it on the horizon. So if the WGA were to go on strike now, mm-hmm. would animation writing and animation writers be affected by that because they aren't technically under that umbrella? Or Yeah, well, that's, that's a good point. We weren't affected in 2008, and I don't anticipate that's going to change. I did see a lot of people who were all of a sudden coming into animation writing and all of a sudden discovered it. I mean, it's it's Would tough. Would that be WGA writers who are striking, coming and working in animation? I can't or? say. Okay. I won't say exactly who they are, but I know some right. people did it, and I understand it because. And you know, the WGA for the most part, we're kind of I think we're fine with that. You shrug like that's fine because it's not covered, and um, it's tough because all of a sudden it shrinks the market for me. Like, oh no! So I I'm kind of looking like, don't let this happen again because now I had to compete with people like, yeah, I was working on Law and Order, now I'm writing this. <laughs> <laughs> this doll the doll yeah. yeah it's like come on dude just, <laughs> just live off your residuals for another year you'll be fine just, just sell one of your jags it's how did the <laughs> how did the 2008 strike effect work for the animation guild did it actually increase the number of offers or did it really not were, were networks ordering more animation to make up for it uh, uh not that i could tell it was bad for me i was completely out of work for a bit but i was you know i was doing i was still doing pitches and i think i did a, i did get a couple episodes actually now i think about it and for the most part, I always felt kind of guilty because everyone kind of thinking, are we, uh, are we allowed to do this? Are we, is this cool? Is this yeah. crossing? We want to know. I mean, and everyone said, like, a, you're, not, you're not scabbing, not crossing. It's fine. But still, you feel in the back of your head, like, I, I feel like I should sit this out, wait, these, you know, wait, these, wait for these people to figure this out and not just sit down, just kind of be cool about it. But then, then the strike kept going longer and longer, like, uh, any, we, any day now, <laughs> be over. Yeah. And then eventually, like, okay, maybe I should write something, you know. If it's okay. Let's say I want to break into children's animation writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would the process be like? What is kind of the advice that you want to give our listeners? I have no advice. <laughs> I, I, my, my advice is maybe don't. Stay out of my yard. <laughs> um, I, I guess with any, any kind of writing, you know, it first starts researching. If you're kind of worried about being pigeonholed in a niche, just keep that in mind. If you start somehow doing a lot of animation writing, and you want to start kind of branching out to live action, being in a room, writing on a hot, hot series or something, you might have a hard time convincing, your mis- your, you're convincing other people to hire you to do that kind of thing. It's been sort of my experience of that too. But I think if you write, you know, start specking a bit, watch the show, watch the series you kind of like, write, up, write your own stuff, write a pilot. And if you can, try to get a temp assignment some of these production companies. And like, you know, it's still, I see less of it now, but I it's still there, I think. People can still get those gigs. People can work on a, on a show that's animated and possibly it'll be a script coordinator and, and wait for that time to pitch. Got some advice? So what are your kind of goals for the future? Do you want to end up creating your own kind of kids show? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, do you want to write for Disney, Pixar features? Like, you know, you mentioned to me that you were kind of recording some voices for some of your own stuff as well. Oh, I was recording voices of something like a while back. And, um and then I learned not to do that. <laughs> that it's amazing how well you wow. think you sound as, oh, my voice for this character is so great. And you do it. And it's like a, a professional is in a booth going like, just giving you the whole neck thing. Stop. Just please. You're not, you're not good. Like, really? So many creators good. do that. Like Seth MacFarlane and Justin Roiland and all those guys. They have good voices. Yeah. I mean, you know, what do you want to say about Seth MacFarlane? Other, but he's, he can sing. He has a great voice. They all sound like Brian the dog, but is <laughs> and Justin Roiland has his you know he can do Sinatra and Justin Roiland has his two voices, but they're good you know. <laughs> oh jeez, <laughs> I think we all have our Rick and Morty, so I'll be yeah. practicing. <laughs> uh, but yes. Did you see that? Uh, did you see that 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 surprise April first yes, episode? The first oh, premiere. so great. Did not believe it. But, uh, uh, yeah, it was so a reverse. Then... It was a reverse April Fool's joke. It's like Dan Harmon's thinking, seeing their 
having a beer. Thank you. I'm going to do a joke by telling people I'm going to not give them an episode and give them an episode as this great <laughs> gift. Thou show them. <laughs> now that is product placement. Yeah, then the boom. Szechuan sauce. sauce. Uh, but yeah, so what are your kind of goals for the future then? What do you want to end up doing? I'm putting a couple of pitches together and a couple of pitches are, one is a live action kids series and one is a animated series. And I still... You know, since I've sort of made the inroads in this kind of this part of the industry and I've learned to love it, I'm, I'm definitely going to always try to pitch some animation stuff. And then I'm always uh, try, trying to get there and get some more freelance writing gigs as well as possibly. I've always entertained the idea of being in a writer's room. I think it'd be a great experience for me based on the fact that I, I do have that kind of writing experience in terms of, of having that, that kind of experience. But again, of course, this is convincing people of you want to write live action. But I only have live action samples that are original, but I don't have anything that's been produced, but I sort of have a heck of a lot of, of animation stuff. Also, I'm in the middle of uh, adapting a kid's book for a, a live action family film. So I've been doing that for about a year. So it's, that's, doing, that's pretty good. And that's a different departure. That's different than what I've been doing a long time. But I have the first thing I've ever wanted to do was like maybe write features or produce features. So I always kind of knew I was going to come back to writing a feature. I do kind of try to write a feature Every year or so, I do something like um, something even out of my wheelhouse, like horror, comedy, live action. And this is live action, too, I think I mentioned. It's not a cartoon. Before we head out, do you have any uh, resources that you want to give our listeners? I, I, not too long ago, I bought, a, I, bought a, I bought a book, Producing Animation, Second Edition by Focus Pre- Focal Press, sorry, written by Catherine Winder and Zara doubt a lot of body sorry Zara if I ever run into you in circles I'm sure we will I apologize for um, shredding your name like that but yeah it's, it's a it's a good book because it's it's doesn't have much to do with writing animation at all but it's, it was more important about just learning how you might fit into that part of the whole procedure of actually making it happen and if for a lot of people who might be thinking about going into making their own stuff like I, I want to make my own web series or something if you're if you're lucky enough to be one of those talented people who can actually draw not like me I can't draw to save my life and you want to do your own stuff you you know you could see the whole procedure how it's done professionally and it was a very good book and I had like actually some colleagues of mine were in that book and I saw their names like oh I know that guy and he's, you know contributing in that book and you know it was interesting because even as a writer I, I, I was a lot of my friends and colleagues weren't writers so much in the animation realm when I was at Wonder Brothers, so many of them were directors and artists and stuff, and I was like the only writer in those groups of people hanging out. So I, I you know, I kind of glommed onto them and kind of learned from their perspective, like what's what's good writing. I would actually ask them a lot, like what is from an artist or for directors, but what is what is a good script? And one one of my director colleagues, uh, his name is Russell Calabresi, and he's a multi Emmy winning director. He worked in Peaking the Brain and stuff. And I said, I always ask him, What's the, what, is you, what do you hate in animation script more than anything as a director? And he hate, one, one example was some person wrote in a script, and he, he was like really angry about it. And he I kid you not, he wrote, Full scale ride ensues. And that was all the description <laughs> he had. And um, he was like, You've got to be kidding me. And he's like, You had to go back to, the, you know, to, this, to everyone involved. Like, I can't. This is not this is not at riot. You have to describe the riot, and that's something I should say about animation riot, which is kind of different from live action stuff. Like you can get away with full scale riot, maybe some details like cars are on fire, windows being smashed, fists and arms, close ups of people choking each other, and diapers being towed away from from Costco and things like that. The crowd scenes are hard, right? You don't. Yeah, you gotta. Um, but with animation, you kind of have to spell it out, and and even still, you don't have to spell it out entirely. But when you have crowd scenes and riot stuff, and do animation writing as opposed to live action. 
there's a lot of spelling out and paragraphs could be a lot thicker than they are in, in um, live action, but still can't be too thick. I think that brings us to the end of our episode. So we'd like to thank all of our listeners for taking the time. I uh, survived. Yes. <laughs> uh, you can get the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 41. As always, can leave us reviews at paperteam.co slash iTunes. Reviews help this show, Paper Team, get new listeners, which will build our awesome community and make us do more episodes, basically. (laughs) (laughs) And once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, the Tracking Board's Launchpad Writing Competitions. Paper Team listeners can actually save $15 off of their next purchase. Just use the code PAPERTEAM, that's all one word and all in capitals, PAPERTEAM, at the checkout to receive your discount. And you can learn more about all the Launchpad's current and upcoming writing competitions by visiting tblaunchpad.com. And it is case sensitive, so don't forget the, the caps. And as always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. Are you on Twitter, Stephen? I am. I am on Twitter, very much so, at S. Darren Set. So it's my first initial, S. My last name, Darren Set, at D A R A N C E T T E. Yeah, I have to spell that out because no one gets it. It's like they drop the E or they add other letters. They make it Darren Shetty or some sort of Italian name that doesn't exist in any in any country I'm aware Darren of. Darren Spaghetti. Darren Spaghetti. Uh, oh, I've, yeah, I don't want to. I've heard some names. Very creative stuff, and especially in elementary school, their kids are can be mean. Oh boy. Uh, so if you, if the listeners have any feedback, thoughts, or opinions, you can send them to us at ask at paperteam.co. And what are we doing next week? Well, next week we will be talking about TV viewing habits. How does the way you consume a TV show impact the way you both enjoy it as well as write it? So we'll be talking about Netflix, OTTs, binging, and everything in between. See you next week.